This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. We hear the term social justice quite often, but what does it mean? Today, Marcus and I will explore this approach to human rights and equality from a Jewish perspective. Stay tuned, and we'll be back in a moment. Again, this is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. Pleased to be here in the studio. Happy to have you all back in the audience with us again for a conversation about social justice. Marcus, glad to be here with you. How are you? Likewise, I'm here. Excited for this conversation. Uh, We hear it a lot in our roles as professors at the university. I mean, what comes to mind when you think about social justice? Honestly, what comes to mind is an often ill-defined idea um, and practices that are often loosely associated with this ill-defined idea. Right. So I, I don't know that uh, we've seen yet uh, what I would consider to be a sort of critical mass of, of careful conversation around what social justice is, what it looks like. Um, and maybe this this show can begin or, or be a part of that conversation. Right. Driving us to thinking about it exactly. in a much more critical way. Mm-hmm. I, You know me, I like to find quotes, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm always reading certain material. Then I'll see something that someone says that would just kind of stick out to me. But I was reading not too long ago and saw a quote by Sonia Gandhi, who is an Indian politician. She's mm-hmm. Leader of one of the political parties there, or has been. And she said at one point, Marcus, and I, and I would love to get your take on what she's saying here, but she she's actually quoted as having saying, as having said, growth is essential and must be sustained, but rapid growth alone cannot address the problems arising out of continued disparities. We hear a lot about disparities. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could go into detail here on the show talking about some of the disparities that we talk about here in our own community. Mm-hmm. She went on to say that tackling these is not just a matter of social justice, there's that term, not just a matter of social justice, but more importantly, an essential necessity to an immoral imperative. Mm-hmm. It's like, so is there something that is moral about this whole idea of social justice? Well, what's interesting to me is, I guess, a question that precedes the what is social justice question, and, and just to localize it a bit. Uh, you know, we live in a country, North Americans, that espouses a commitment to justice all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but this country's this country's socio-political history uh, paints a picture that um, isn't isn't really just at all, or at at at, at worst, or at best, is very difficult to sort of see where justice shows up in the American mm-hmm. story. So, for me, the first question is, uh, what is justice from an American <laughs> perspective? And secondly. Um, you know, you know, can we point to examples where America has practiced justice in fact, mm-hmm. or is it the case that America has always been kind of um, an aspirationally just uh, society? Right. And um, yeah, I, I, I think that the American story just really further underscores how complicated um, Gandhi's question is, right. um, even within an, an, a North American milieu. Absolute. You think about so th- this word social that we put in front of right. justice. Mm. And I have said in the classroom a lot, why can't we just focus on justice itself? Yeah. What yeah. do you and you raise that question here? What do we mean by jo- justice? Mm. Or we could throw the yeah. term economic justice in yeah. front of this. OK, yeah. what what do we we hear that sometimes? Yeah. Is that a component of what we're talking about when we talk about social justice? Yeah. Uh, those are bigger issues to kind of tackle and, and get into. Yeah, yeah. And I'm hoping that we'll have opportunity to kind of explore this a little bit with our two guests today. And so Marcus and I are going to step out in just a minute and we'll be back for that conversation. 
Again, this is the Waters and Harvest Show. I'm Darren Waters. Glad to be here with you. We're coming here to you from from Asheville here at Blue Ridge Public Radio. And Marcus, this big question about social justice. We're really glad and pleased and honored, really, to have two guests here in the studio with us who we want to welcome here. We have two guests from Carolina Jews for Justice. Miss Judy Levitt, the organization's president, who is a retired nurse, nursing and health uh, policy educator. And we have also attorney Frank Goldsmith a board member and civil rights attorney and mediator here in Asheville. They're both dear friends. We're glad to have them here in the studio to help us with this whole issue of social justice, looking at it from their work with Carolina Jews for Justice West. Welcome to the studio. Thank Welcome. you. Thank you. Glad to have you. Glad to have you here. You know, so Frank and Judy, I guess the best place to start here, if you don't mind, is just to talk a little bit about your organization. Can you tell us a little bit about <coughs> Carolina Jews for Justice West? Sure, I'll be glad to to start. Let me say this is a fascinating conversation to be having, and we're so grateful to you for having us on and letting us talk about social justice in this religious context, in a sense, of Carolina Jews for Justice. So Carolina Jews for Justice West is a chapter of a statewide organization that was founded about five years ago called Carolina Jews for Justice. We were the first chapter that was formed. Uh, Judy here actually formed it, and she'll tell you more about that. Mm -hmm. But basically, we are a progressive social justice organization. We're a nonpartisan 501c3 entity, but we approach social justice from a progressive viewpoint and through the lens of our Jewish heritage. Mm -hmm. And that Jewish heritage speaks to social justice in a way that resonates with us and with many Jews. We learn from the Hebrew Bible, for example, that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. We learn that we are to pursue justice. We are taught by Rabbi Hillel 2,000 years ago who said that if I am only for myself, what am I? Mm -hmm. And so we take that to heart. And here in the West, we work uh, primarily in five areas of social justice. One is economic justice that you just mentioned. And so within that, we work on seeking to raise the minimum wage and ensuring that people who work earn a living wage so that they can put food on the table and a roof over their heads and the other necessities of life. Uh, we work for expansion of Medicaid so that people can have health care. We work for expansion of public transportation to underserved communities um, and a host of issues related to social justice uh, in the economic sphere. We also work in racial justice. We are a founding member of the Racial Justice Coalition here in Buckham County. Um, and we've had other, we work to support uh, black owned businesses um, and support uh, that aspect of tourism here in Asheville. We do work in immigration justice and try to work with the Latino community primarily as an example of uh, the immigrant community here that we work with. We work in voter engagement and trying to ensure that people who are entitled to vote are registered to vote and they turn out to vote. We're nonpartisan. We don't tell them how to vote, but we want them to exercise that mm -hmm. franchise. And then finally, we, have, we work to build an inclusive community for all. And so that means that we fight uh, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, homophobia, other forms of hatred 
based on the characteristics that people have. All right. Now, for an organization like like uh, this to um, emerge in the American South, um, mm-hmm. given this country's history, is remarkable. So I'm curious, either Judy or Frank, if you'd be willing to talk a little bit more about the genesis of this organization. What precipitated it? How did it come about? We are a product of the work of Reverend Barber. And it started when um, Reverend Barber started with his Moral Monday movement. Um, when the legislature changed in terms of some of the policies that they were advocating, Reverend Barber was very concerned, organized all kinds of faith communities, including Jews who had never really been organized as such in the South. And um, it, was a, it was a teaching moment for a lot of people. Many Jews in the Raleigh-Durham area, as well as across the state, were coming to support his work. And, um, and as Reverend Barber would speak, it would often be a very Christian-focused perspective, which was his background, which was the work that he was doing. And um, many of those Jews got together and said, went to see Reverend Barber and said, we are 100% with you. We want to do the work. We're part of the work. We also want to be acknowledged as, as part of the work. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, you know, my, my perspective is it probably helped Reverend Barber in being as incredibly inclusive as he is today. Um, and it was an organizing force for us. And the way we started in the, in the West was just a few months later, some of you may remember, Reverend Barber came to Pack Square. And um, I, I was heading the social justice uh, committee at the temple here in Asheville and thought that I had permission to take our temple banner down to Pack Square. And what happens within many faith communities, they don't want to sign off on what they see as social advocacy. And I was got a call telling me I did not have permission to take the banner down. And um, I was not a happy camper. And I was it was suggested that maybe what I needed to do was just organize Jews and that's exactly what happened. Our first meeting, we had over 50 people come and say, this is the way I want to practice my Judaism. And we so, take it off from there. So, so Judy, how long, what year was that when, when the organization started? Can, can you remind us? 2013? 2013, 2013. The, at the state level and early 2014 in the West. So this is six years of yeah. work yeah. at this point. So I'm hearing, too, from what you're saying, that the scope of the work is, is not just Western North Carolina focused, but across the state. How is that looking? I know from my own contact with the two of you that you are extremely active in this community, and I see you and, and have a great deal of appreciation for the work that you're doing here. How does it look across the state? Uh, well, I, I think we're thriving and growing across the state is the way that I would put it. We have chapters in a combined chapter in the Durham Chapel Hill area. We have one in Raleigh. We have one in Charlotte. We have this one here in the West. We are working right now to grow one in the Greensboro, the Triad area, Greensboro, Winston-Salem, High Point, and we hope to expand further. Um, Each of those chapters takes on issues that are within the mandate of the state organization, certainly. They fit within our principles, but they can be adapted to fit the needs of that community. So, for example, in Charlotte, there's a great focus on affordable housing. Okay. Um, And so it varies depending on the region. Right, right. Yeah. And I'm I'm curious to hear um, both from Judy and from Frank about uh, what motivated your specific involvement um, as as individuals um, in this organization. 
Well, as I said, I was doing a lot of social justice work at the mm-hmm. temple, and actually we were pretty much the only Jews at the table, so to speak. And and being a Yankee, um, I must admit, um, I had always done social justice work, and there was a lot more, at least in my growing up, um, acknowledgement that that was part of my responsibility as a human being. I was a nurse. I used that social justice work in my work, um, working with poor families and uh, mothers and children. Um, when I moved to the South and I was in Mississippi first, social justice work was not a part of um, a what I was able to do. Mm-hmm. And so when I got here and saw that within the um, temple community, then the larger community, people would ask, particularly Christians, would say, we've been wanting Jews at the table, and we just didn't know who they were, because there is an acceptance of religion being a motivating factor, I think, in many ways more in the South than in the North. Mm. And, and Judy, just as a follow-up before we hear from Frank, you mentioned earlier when we were asking about the genesis of the organization that um, Jews in the South really hadn't organized themselves um, in this way. Any thoughts about the reasons for that? I'm just curious to hear. It's a great question, Marcus, and I'm sure you can appreciate it. Um, Jews were afraid. Um, There has been a history of anti-Semitism. I know in Mississippi, it was, I, I would hear stories about what happened with temple bombings and the Klan and other groups that were targeting Jews. Um, Certainly they were targeting people of color, but they were targeting Jews. And so there's been a tendency to be under the radar. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, so I, you know, and I would like to go back, uh, Frank, to something that you said earlier that just really stuck out to me. And I don't know if I'm going to get this quote exactly right, but I'm always kind of homing in on quotes. But you said that if, you know, if I'm for myself, who am I for? You know, this kind of, and it just seems to me that American society seems to be structured in a way that it's very it can be very self-driven you know people are thinking about okay what it is i need to do for myself i mean we we have had a tradition where people have worked together as communities but you know i could go into you know people like alexis de tocqueville who you've heard me talk about a lot and he saw this early on but he saw it becoming somewhat problematic as the nation grew and expanded um so I'm wondering, when you think about that and you think about American capitalist culture, mm-hmm. you know, does it conflict with that idea? And have we worked out the ten- – if that does that make sense? If Have we worked out that tension in our society? I, yeah, I think that's a great question. So to put that in context, the full quote – this is from Rabbi Hillel, who is one of our most revered sages, as I said, from a couple of thousand years ago. And, and it was a three-part quote. What he, what he, I, I, did, I gave part of it. What mm-hmm. he said was – if I am not for myself, who will be for me? That's the mm-hmm. first part. And then, if I am only for myself, what am I? And then, if not now, when? Mm-hmm. And I think that teaches that we have to look out for ourselves. We have to protect ourselves. We have to advocate for ourselves. <coughs> but we cannot do that in isolation. We have to look out for the greater community as well. And the if not now, when, we need to do it now. We need to be active. And I think that, uh, to me, it's a statement of, altruism and activism and to some extent yes it conflicts with the the paradigm in american society of looking out only for yourself Mm -hmm. and being a capitalist and building wealth and not caring as much for others that is certainly not to say that there aren't a lot of people out there who are working for others uh both 
in our Jewish community and certainly in other communities as well. But I, to me, that is something that gives us inspiration and drives an urgent need in us to try to do what we can to repair the world. Right, and I feel like that that some of the people that you're talking about are some of the unsung heroes in our community because you don't see them that often Mm -hmm. because they're busy out there doing this kind of community building work. And so if we can find ways to kind of celebrate those people, I'm always for, you know, because they stand as shining examples of what is possible when people kind of Mm -hmm. come together and work together, which brings me kind of to another point that, and I think, you know, in some ways, we've had maybe marginalized conversations about this a little bit, Judy. But thinking about some of the divisions that exist within our community today, racial divisions, um, and, and have you all at Carolina Jews for Justice found those to be barriers to doing the type of work that you want to do? It, it, we have had these conversations, and there it's such an important question, and I, I don't know that we have any answers, but I think that the barriers um, reflect people pulling together who are more like-minded. And I think Jews and other groups, particularly white groups, have gone into communities of color and other communities in a very patriarchal, sometimes well-meaning, well-meaning way and not understand why, as I was reminded when I was in Mississippi at, at when we had a faculty disagreement and it was very much black and white and I kind of stepped up and said, well, maybe I can help facilitate it. And one of the members of the faculty turned to me and said, we don't need you coming down here as saving us from ourselves. And I thought, what a, I was so hurt. But then when I thought about it, I thought that's exactly what probably my motivation is without my appreciation. And I think that's often, um, a barrier to us going in not as equals and saying, how can I be helpful rather than coming in and saying, well, maybe this is what I can do for right, you. Right, right. Yeah. We, we approach things with, as if we have the answers mm-hmm. sometimes. Yeah. And, and, and I think sometimes that we, um, all of us, sometimes we underestimate how formidable these barriers really are. And that, that leads me to, to wonder, um, can these barriers, from your perspective, um, can these barriers ultimately be surmounted? And if so, um, how? what might that look like? We have just started a um, discussion of very, I think, what we're, are going to be difficult discussions around um, Jewish white privilege and how that affects going and trying to help communities of color. And I think the purpose of it is to exactly look at that kind of bar- those barriers and to get in touch with ourselves in a way that is very difficult to do. And then with the goal of going in in a much more authentic, um, caring, equally caring way to try to see if we can practice what some of that understanding hopefully will lead to. And I, I think that's one approach. I don't think that there, I mean, there are many, many ways, but I think creating the personal connections um, is another way mm-hmm. instead of, I mean, we can't understand another community unless we get to know people in the community both ways. Right. It, Judy, it, you mentioning that is, it reminds me of how you and I met each mm-hmm. other. And even with Frank, it, it was through an effort to 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 develop a deeper understanding of the historical experiences of people in the African-American community. And listening to you uh, respond to Marcus's question just now, it made me think about 
1916 when Carter G. Woodson and Marcus and I have talked about Carter G. Woodson a lot because he's considered the father of African-American history when he was working to found the organization that he would use as kind of the conduit for digging into this history and putting it out there for popular consumption was called at the time the Association, the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History when he was looking for funders and Julius Rosenwald mm-hmm. was one of those people that he went to early on but they were disinclined to fund it. And he was told at at one point, as he's developing, that African-Americans didn't have a history worth studying. And so it, it and I've heard so many other people talk about um, talk about within the African-American community, the need to know other people, but people feeling that people have never really taken the time to get to know their experiences. Um, So you all hosted a program a few years ago that I participated Mm -hmm. in that was really looking at the historical experiences of of African-Americans here. Can you tell us a little bit about other programming that you're doing that may kind of fall uh, in that same category or other things? You know, it, I'm glad you reminded us of that, Darren, because that, that really was one of the very first programs that we did when you spoke on the history of slavery in Asheville, subject a lot of people did not know anything about. It arose out of uh, the effort to refurbish the Vance Monument, and Carolina Jews <laughs> for Justice got engaged in that and said, hold on, there's a whole other story to what happened at that very place in Pack Square. And you came and educated us about it, and that that was so valuable to us. And I think out of that probably grew the idea of the Black Jewish Alliance that we established, that you were part of, we were part of. And so in terms of other programs, as I mentioned, we we have joined the Racial Justice Coalition, and we're one of the founding members of that, to work on issues of fair law enforcement here in Buncombe Mm. County across (laughs) communities of color. Um, And we are... uh, doing what we can in in other areas to support um, black-owned businesses. Um, We have have sponsored other programs on cash bail reform, on mass incarceration, uh, very successful programs that drew a lot of people. And we have tended to work in coalition with other groups when we've done that. So we've co-sponsored some of those with the ACLU or with other organizations who have a like objective. Right. So I, I've got to say here before Marcus jumps back in, I knew I knew this was going to happen as we were having this conversation, that things were going to come up. So this whole idea of fair law enforcement, we're going to have to do a whole show on that. Absolutely. One. I want to come back to I really want to come back yeah, to that one. Yeah. Um, so both so both Frank and Judy, you, you both have had um respective careers in higher education. Um, I can certainly relate to that as a professor myself. I'm sure Darren can as well. Um, I'm curious to hear a bit um, from both of you, um, if time allows, with respect to how that uh, that background as educators informs the work that you do um, in, in, in the CJJ West. Well, <clears throat> I started out teaching um, maternal child health. And so um, whenever uh, this was many years ago when programs were starting for um, women and children particularly, and I always had students um, interview moms, interview families to know what was, how they were managing on very minimal 
income and how they were able to provide or not, for most cases, not provide adequate health care for their kids that they wanted to do, but they weren't able to do. And then I moved um, into health policy and all of the teaching that I did involved students having to have projects um, around health policy. They went to the legislature, they worked on laws. And I, I think what is too often happens in higher education and particularly probably in the social sciences um, that that often faculty are removed from real life. And, you know, those of us who have been in academia know that there is academia and then there's the real world. And, and trying to make those connections more and more as the world becomes more complex. And it isn't just doing research projects that don't get utilized. That research is wonderful, but it's not worth much if it isn't applied. And I think that faculty need to do more work themselves to understand what some of those real world problems are, not the specific piece that they might be selecting because of research Mm -hmm. um, needs, and expose students to that. I think Students in every um, part of upper um, of higher education should have to do some type of um, um, work in communities as part of either courses or certainly as part of their whole program and do what what you're in charge of, Darren. Um, student engagement. Right. I mean, I think that's the way they learn, and that's what they take with them when they graduate. It isn't the reminder of what happened in in particular courses. Yes points stand out, but it's really the real world experiences. They can apply that learning and be mentored by folks like both of you. Right, right. Frank, you you have any perspective on that as well? And Judy, I really appreciate that perspective. You know, having worked somewhat as a social worker myself, as a probation parole officer, I, you know, that what you said about the academy is a bubble. Sometimes we do exist in a bubble, and I think that we really do forget that sometimes. And so I think it's an important point for us to really consider. Well, uh, the only thing I, I agree totally with what Judy said mm-hmm. about inspiring students. I don't have that same background in teaching. I have taught uh, trial advocacy, and I have lectured to students. And when I've when I've been privileged to give a talk to students about something like the death penalty, for example, or about uh, you know my experience in representing detainees in Guantanamo, it's really with the hope that it will inspire students to get into social mm-hmm. justice work themselves. Right. I think that is such a valuable function of education, that inspiration. Well, again, Marcus and I want to thank you. The 30 minutes, the time that we have together goes, goes so quickly, but I want to thank you both for the way that you approach the work. You approach it with such a self-awareness that mm-hmm. I think that is very refreshing and something that so many uh, other people really need to kind of develop as well. So Marcus and I want to thank you for taking the time to come into the studio and talk with us today. We'll be back in a moment. Thank Thank you. Well, again, this is the Waters and Harvey Show. Marcus, I want to thank you uh, for taking the time to engage in that conversation with Frank and Judy. Yeah. It was a rich conversation, but it just it's just getting the ball rolling it on is. where we need to go. It is. And I think one of the important things that CJJ West does is it really prompts us to begin to think carefully and in concrete ways about what is justice really? Mm-hmm. Are we a nation of laws really? And what does justice require? Right. And I think if those if those questions are absent from conversations about justice, then those conversations 
conversations aren't serious, in right. my opinion. And I think, you know, the point that Judy brought up about how some of this work is approached, we, we come at it, and she used the term uh, patriarchal in, in nature. I also use the term uh, that there's a lot of, uh, oh, now I can't think of the, the yeah. word that I want to, but, uh, you know, you know how we approach it as if yeah. we have the answers. We go into these communities as if we have the answers instead of letting people um, feel that they are participating in finding answers to their problems or the challenges that they face themselves. Yeah, and, and I think what we see in the CJJ West is an example of a very self-reflective approach, which is important, I think, in social justice. It really is. So I look forward to having a further conversation with them again. But in the meantime, Marcus and I want to remind you all that the Waters and Harvey Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina. And you can listen to us, to our podcast on BPR.org, on the BPR mobile app, and on iTunes and Google Play. Follow us and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter. And then Marcus and I will see you again next time. Take care.